0: It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Friday, October 2nd, 2020. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. Lawmakers from Southeast are adding their voices to requests for a disaster declaration for the 2020 commercial salmon fishing season. Democratic and independent legislators from Juneau, Ketchikan, and Sitka sent a letter on October 1st to state officials. They'd like the state to seek a fisheries disaster declaration by the U.S. Commerce Secretary. The letter highlights some of the lowest catches in decades for some species, low prices paid for that seafood, and a loss of markets because of the COVID-19 health pandemic. Such a declaration could pave the way for federal aid money, like that paid out for low pink salmon returns in the region in 2016. Disaster declaration requests are coming from multiple southeast Alaska communities, including Petersburg, Wrangell, Sitka, and Ketchikan. Petersburg's letter, approved last month, also blames a drop in prices on retaliatory tariffs from the Trump administration's trade war with China and an imbalance of seafood imports from Russia. At the same time, the Department of Agriculture announced relief payments for fishermen impacted by tariffs. It's been a hard season for small fishermen in many parts of Alaska because of economic losses caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. But as Erin McKinstry reports for Alaska's Energy Desk, a seafood donation program started by a Sitka organization is helping bring some stability to fishermen and consumers during an uncertain
1: time. It's starting to drizzle as I step off the dock at Sitka's Elias and Harbor and follow Jackie Foss onto her and her husband's gray and blue 40-foot troller, the Axel.
2: You land your fish here you clean here and you ice and store them in these um totes before you put them down in the hold
1: for most of the season it's just foss's husband and one crew member trolling southeast waters for lingcod coho and king salmon while foss runs the business shoreside this was their ninth season commercial fishing and it wasn't an easy one mostly because of the pandemic
2: so we're Low volume, high quality, and so typically restaurant markets, a lot of the fish goes out whole and fresh. And um, with the collapse of the restaurant industry, there was no
0: market.
1: They also worried that even if they could sell their fish, they wouldn't be able to get it processed if facilities closed down because of coronavirus outbreaks. And the pandemic disrupted Asian markets, a relationship that was already strained because of tariffs and counter tariffs between the U.S. and China. At the start of the season, the price for lingcod was half of what it was last year. The Fosses didn't know if they'd be able to operate. When
2: you're starting out with unknown markets, unknown volume, unsure if you're going to be able to sell your fish anywhere, there was a lot of anxiety early on.
1: But they did operate thanks to a seafood donation program started by Linda Banken at the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association, or ALFA. I very quickly heard about people who were struggling here in town, and that catalyzed us to start talking to local fishermen, local processors, about how we as commercial fishermen could help meet that local need. Normally, Alpha is a membership organization that advocates for sustainable fisheries and small fishermen. They also run Alaskan's OWN, a community-supported fishery that sells seafood boxes to people around the country. But Banken and her partners decided to branch out to meet the local need brought on by the pandemic. They used grant funds to supplement the price of lingcod so Sitka fishermen like Foss and her husband could start their season with some security. Then, they created a market for the seafood by delivering it to families who were struggling to make ends meet because of the pandemic. It was just a particularly difficult time for people and then to be able to have really good quality food coming from Alaska's healthy oceans. Um, yeah, it's a really special time to be able to provide that and make those connections. Soon, Bankin started getting calls from other communities asking her to expand. With the help of outside funders and organizations, they delivered seafood to military families in Alaska and to tribal communities in the Pacific Northwest. Justin Zellner is the head of The Wave, the foundation that helped distribute the seafood in Washington and Oregon.
2: We must support our sustainable fisheries to keep that economy going, because if we were all to, to not be able to survive this, then... We don't have sustainable fisheries in the future, right? That that is such a critical investment.
1: Then came the news about poor salmon runs. Southeast Alaska had the worst commercial fishing season for salmon in 44 years. And sockeye runs in Chignik Bay on the Alaska Peninsula failed altogether. The program brought salmon from Bristol Bay, where the salmon season was strong, to Chignik. And most recently, they partnered with Sea Alaska. To bring nearly 50,000 pounds of sockeye to tribal households in several remote Southeast Alaska communities. Teodola Silva works for Angoon's tribe, the Angoon Community Association. She helped organize the donation for her community. Fish was very scarce this summer, so just receiving this 8,000 pounds from these organizations was just a very generous opportunity for us. Um, just so that we have enough food supply for our winters. The donation was personal, too. Silva was worried she wasn't going to have enough salmon to make sockeye dry fish this year. But now, she will. I'm also really excited for this week because I know that there's going to be a bunch of smokehouses running, and I just that's my favorite smell in the world. It's just the smokehouse smell, and I'm excited for that. The program will continue distributions through the winter in Sitka. Bankin says if they get support from the USDA and other funders, they can expand and continue connecting fishermen with communities in need. For Alaska's Energy Desk, I'm Erin McKinstry in Sitka. Conservationists
0: are urging state and federal game managers not to reopen the hunting and trapping season for wolves around Prince of Wales Island. That's to allow the population to recover from last season's record harvest. Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick has this update.
3: Much of Prince of Wales is part of Tongass National Forest. As such, hunting and trapping is managed by both the state and federal governments. The U.S. Forest Service postponed the federal subsistence wolf season until at least Halloween the state's hunting season is slated to open 2 weeks later. Now, wildlife advocates are calling for both hunting and trapping seasons to be canceled altogether. Federal and state managers eliminated the harvest cap last year. Patrick Laven of Defenders of Wildlife in Anchorage says that allowed a record 165 wolves to be hunted and trapped.
2: And that was more than 5 times the maximum amount that would have been allowed under the quota system that had been there. And the, you know, that level of trapping direct mortality is is on top of other challenges for these wolves especially from extensive habitat loss from clear cutting and road road building in the in the past
3: a 2018 estimate by the alaska department of fish and game put the alexander archipelago wolf population at around 170. but biologists say wolves breed quickly and a 2019 population estimate minus the 165 reported killed is due in the next few weeks That report will be a key factor in determining whether the state's hunting and trapping season will go forward, State Fish and Game Commissioner Doug Vincent Lang wrote in a September 18th letter to the Alaska Wildlife Alliance. He added that under the current management plan, the season will be closed if the population estimate falls below 100 wolves. Hunters on the island have disputed that the wolf population is threatened. The animals are largely targeted due to their predation on deer. Venison is a prime subsistence food for the island's residents. But there's been little consensus about the health of Southeast Alaska's wolf population, a controversy that's run for decades. Environmentalists have again petitioned the federal government to list Southeast Alaska's wolves as a distinct and threatened subspecies. That request remains pending with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick.
0: Ketchikan City Council could soon add a new element to its twice-monthly meetings. As KRBD's Eric Stone reports, the council is considering acknowledging the first city's first inhabitants at the start of each session.
2: Every Ketchikan City Council meeting starts exactly the same way.
3: I'd like to call this regular city council meeting of September 17th to order. Please call the roll.
2: That's Mayor Bob Sievertson banging the gavel there. And after the call to order, most people place a hand over their hearts.
3: I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United, United States, States of America, America and to the, and to the republic, republic for which it stands.
2: And then the council members get down to business. But there soon could be a new element. The Ketchikan City Council would like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional first people of this land in Ketchikan, the Tongass Klinkit people. That's Councilmember Emily Chappell. She's reciting a land acknowledgement. Former Alaska Native Brotherhood Grand President Richard Jackson explained it during a council meeting in August.
3: Traditionally, when we meet as a people, the Tlingit or the Ida, the Simpsian, we acknowledge the people that lived on the land. It doesn't mean sovereignty. It's an acknowledgement of the people
2: who have been here. Chapel first asked the council to consider adding a land acknowledgement to its meetings earlier this summer. It got unanimous support. It's up for a final vote on Thursday. If it passes, Ketchikan's council would join the Anchorage Assembly and the Fairbanks School Board, among others, in formally recognizing its forebears before conducting the public's business. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone.
0: Emergency officials in Petersburg say an employee of Petersburg Medical Center has tested positive for COVID-19. Petersburg's Emergency Operations Center made that announcement on Thursday morning. The positive test came from routine asymptomatic testing for staffers. The person has been notified and is isolating, and state health officials have also been notified. That starts a contact tracing investigation. Petersburg Medical Center has gone to red status, which means restrictions to access by the public and screenings. Petersburg's last positive case was announced August 17th. Local schools returned to green status this week with all in-person learning after starting off the school year with a mix of online and in-person schooling. The district will also be hosting cross-country teams in a regional meet at Green's Camp on southern Midcoff Island Friday and Saturday. As of Thursday, the EOC says this latest case has not changed the green status for the school district. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News. This is morning.